0: you're listening to the divestopedia exit strategy podcast where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them we elicit expert advice from exit planners attorneys merger and acquisition experts accountants business appraisers and financial advisors all with a goal of educating you about the sales process Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome. It's your host, Noah Rosenfarm, the author of Exit, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, here today with Peter Lehrman, CEO and founder of Axial. Peter is responsible for driving the company's vision to be the trusted platform where private companies connect with capital. And he's got a depth of experience working in private equity and as an entrepreneur. So, Peter, real glad to have you with us.
2: Noah, thanks for having me.
1: Well, Axial's real interesting, and and coincidentally, our last guest on the show was mentioning your company. What gave you the idea to start Axial? Axial was born
2: out of two experiences that I had, one as an investment professional and the other as prior to my career as an investment professional, actually helping my brother, who is an entrepreneur himself. He co-founded a company in the late 1990s. And the company went on to become quite large, quite successful, quite profitable, but had tremendous challenges finding the right financial partners, both in the early days as well as in the more mature stages of the business's life. And. The business was growing very quickly. The business was quite profitable very quickly. And I found it very surprising how hard it was for us, for my brother and for his co-founder and for the rest of us who were at the company, how hard it was for us to actually go about finding the right financial partner and the right capital partner for each stage of developing the business. So I had two experiences. One, as an operator working alongside my brother and uh, that team there. The company grew from a few people to you know five 600 employees. And despite that growth and that success, it was still very, very laborious and very, very complex to find the right partners. And then I spent some time working as an investment professional at a middle market private equity firm. And I realized as part of that chapter in my career that the most challenging part of the entire investment process for a private equity firm is finding the opportunities. It's not the financial modeling. It's not the valuation work. Those are all very important and and required aspects of the pricing and underwriting investment opportunities uh, appropriately. But the hardest part and the part that is the, the most difficult to solve for is actually the process of finding investment opportunities. And so The combination of entrepreneurs struggling to find the right partners and also then seeing how hard it was for investment partners to go about finding the right entrepreneurs just made it very clear that uh, sort of a matchmaking network that could sit in between the two could be uh, very valuable to both sides.
1: And so the technology is what's making this possible or is it just the time that's come?
2: Technology is very important because it helps people connect with one another more intelligently and it allows data and information to be part of the way in which Axial as a platform helps entrepreneurs access capital and access capital partners, as well as access brokers and advisors who can represent their interests. And so if you want to do it on a very small scale and you want to work with only a couple of companies, you can do that longhand. You know, you can do that with pen and paper and some online internet research and maybe a spreadsheet. But if you want to help lots and lots of companies, you want to help thousands of companies access capital markets, you want to help thousands of companies access the right advisors and the right brokers to represent them, Technology sort of makes its way into the the business model at that point. So at the core of Axial is actually a recommendation search engine, not that different from Google search engine or an online travel website engine like an Expedia or, or a Kayak. And it helps the entrepreneur privately go through the search process of identifying both capital partners as well as advisors who can meet their needs.
1: And how does the business make money?
2: It's a 100% subscription-based business, and so we have both members on our network who are using our free tools, and then we have members on our network who are using our subscription-based tools. From a business model perspective, the simplest analogy that most people tend to understand is LinkedIn, where a certain percentage of the functionality is available for free. You can have a profile, you can search the network, but if you want to connect with people, if you want to message with people, if you want to manage a process from start to finish, those are paid tools on Axial, similar to being paid tools on LinkedIn. Obviously, LinkedIn is focused on jobs and and Axial is focused on helping private companies access uh, capital markets, but the business models are similar where a portion of the user base is using our free tools and then a portion of the user base is using subscription-based tools.
1: So, you know, my clients that are thinking about selling their company and they're, you know, trying to interview brokers and figure out which investment bank is best to represent them, they're always concerned about confidentiality. How does Axial, you know, play into that?
2: Well, I think confidentiality is obviously crucial when you're selling a business. I think it's one of the things that distinguishes selling a business from selling. Uh, Real estate, for example, which is a much more listings-oriented business model. Axial operates as a private search engine. So if you're a business owner and you log into Axial and begin to use the search tools, that entire experience is private. And all of the recommendations and all of the information that our product makes available to entrepreneurs is, you know, that's all it is. It's information. If they decide that they want to then reach out and connect with a broker or connect with a banker or connect with a capital partner, they can do that. But the process of using the tools that we've built to just search for and gather information... Those are all private uh, and confidential searches. They're not subject to being publicized or anything. So the way that we've set up the privacy model is at the end of the day, the entrepreneur decides when they want to reach out and connect with someone. And if they decide not to reach out and connect with someone, it just remains a private search.
1: And then on the advisor side, if I have a listing, you know, I'm representing a, a manufacturing business in South Florida, what can I share with the other members?
2: You have discretion over that as well. So really, if you're an advisor and you are managing the process on behalf of a client, you are representing the business, you are the one in charge of sharing information on the business and the desired outcome from a transaction, you can present that information to a number of different recipients on the network. You can present it only to people that are interested in manufacturing. You can present it to everybody who searches for manufacturing opportunities, or you can actually decide specifically who you want to share it with. So I only want to share this opportunity with the following seven strategic buyers or the following four private equity firms or the following 10 family offices. So there's different tiers of information sharing and those are the tiers are essentially chosen by the business owner in partnership with their advisor. So you want to run a very broad process, you want to share the opportunity with, you know, everybody interested in manufacturing, you can do that. If you want to run a very targeted process and only share it with one person on the network, you can do that too. Obviously, when you're selling a business, you know, we've never seen a business where the success in terms of selling the business or financing the business uh, wasn't in some way correlated to the quality of the process and the quality of the outreach. So if you only reach out to one organization, only reach out to one or two people, the likelihood of a successful outcome is much, much lower just because the... There's always some conversion funnel on these processes. If you reach out to 10 people, probably three to five of those people are genuinely going to be interested. And then maybe two to four of those are you know, going to get even more serious. So you have to be thoughtful about how many people you reach out to at the beginning, knowing that uh, at the end of the day, it's difficult to get a significant number of highly qualified buyers to, uh, to compete for the business at the end of the day.
1: What do you see as the biggest challenge right now for the owners in the traditional model of you know they get the phone call from the investment banker that's you know calling a list of 1000 entrepreneurs and saying you know you're thinking about selling your business and they invite them in and then they hire them and then there's an offer sheet and then there's a, a book that goes out and there might be an auction mm-hmm. process what's wrong with the process now what's broken
2: i think what's the challenge with that process is twofold there hasn't been a well codified approach for entrepreneurs to evaluate the suitability of one investment banker or one M&A advisor versus another. It's not common knowledge among entrepreneurs historically. These are the questions that you need to ask. This is the way to structure your fee agreement. This is the way that you want to think about you know, doing reference checks. There isn't a large and well-established body of knowledge that is advising and guiding uh, business owners on the selection process for an investment banker. Because it's such an important decision, and because you're going to be, you know, as the owner, you're going to be selling the most valuable asset that you've developed in your professional career, you don't want to make the decision with, you know, real scarcity of information or real scarcity of best practices. So I think the two things that are potentially broken about it are there's a limited amount of information and best practices that are out there on how to go about identifying and selecting and interviewing different investment banking candidates. And then there's also a limited amount of information on just the standard evaluation, the means by which to evaluate them. The websites from one investment banking firm to the next are all highly variable. some have really well developed websites, others don't. Sometimes it's difficult to you know obtain unbiased. You know, endorsements or testimonials or references, and so it's just challenging when you're making such an important decision to not have both the information on the efficacy of that investment banker and their history of successful transactions. You know, it's also hard to to, to sometimes network and find the right ones. Uh, a lot of times, business owners don't know who the best investment banker is or who the top five investment bankers might be for them. They really are just responding to inbound. So you can get lucky and then have a, you know, the, exactly the right advisor you know, reach you as the owner and do a great job, and that's fantastic. But it's a very important decision. There's a lot of uh, chips that are going to be on the table, and so you want a set of tools and resources that, uh, that help, you, uh, help give you the, the best chance of making a good decision.
1: And what do you see as kind of the major changes that we'll see over the next 10 years in the way the owners are selecting the banker? How much education do you think can be learned? in this
2: next decade? I think a fair amount. I mean, we have sort of one message for owners at Axial, which is that every year you should spend 10% of your professional time developing relationships with investment bankers and potential capital partners for your business. And the reason that we recommend 10% broken up into the four quarters of the year is because we found through some survey work and some survey research that we did of business owners that the majority of business owners are spending less than 1% of their time on it, even though it is a a very monumental set of relationships and very important set of relationships that they need to have when it comes time for them to either finance their business or sell their business. It will really make a big difference if owners have those relationships before they really need them. So we have this one message, which is spend 10% of your time each year developing relationships with the investment banking and business brokerage and capital partner community and do it before you're anticipating a transaction or a business transfer or an exit. I think that's a reasonably straightforward message. We've been uh, championing that message in social media, in webinars and podcasts that we've hosted, in speeches and presentations that we've been giving in different entrepreneurial communities. And I think that just sticking with a simple message like that, where as the CEO of your business, you spend 10% of your time. Focused on developing these relationships, I think that that's something that can easily sink in over the next decade. I'd say the other thing that will change over the next decade is I think that more and more information on the quality and the appropriateness of a given investment banking professional or a given private equity or mezzanine lending professional, I think more and more of that information is going to make its way online. And that will make it easier and easier for business owners to do private online research. On these professionals that they ultimately vest you know a significant amount of uh, trust and a significant amount of their their life's work in, so I think the other thing that will change over the next ten years is more and more of that information will get codified, and that will create tremendous opportunities for the best investment banking professionals, the best boutique, business brokers, the best private equity firms, because their reputations will be amplified online. And the professionals who have done a less than satisfactory job partnering with and advising business owners will you know, will probably have the less than satisfactory job that they've done amplified uh, online as well.
1: Does Axial aggregate any of those data points on at number of deals retained, number of deals closed, average sales price, average you know, whatever else there might be?
2: Yeah, as an investment banker who joins Axial, as a free part of your profile, you actually can detail all of the uh, closed transactions and other milestones that you've achieved as a professional. And you can link to the CEOs and business owners who you've advised. So as part of the free profiling tool set, you can link to all of that information and make that all highly available. You don't have to disclose the terms of transactions and, and stuff like that. A lot of times that information is very sensitive, but the profiling tool makes it easy for investment bankers to highlight the successes and the close transactions that they've been uh, the advisor on.
1: So in all my travels, you know, one of the things you said that resonated with me is the 10% of your time dedicated to getting to know capital partners and bankers. I had one CEO yeah. in my whole career that I met that spent 25% of his time. And he said, you know, I think that the single most important function I have is getting this business ready to sell for the highest price when the time is right. And I do that by constantly meeting with people that have their finger on the pulse and are giving me you know, data points so I, I can reference what's going on in the industry, what's going on in the market, when's the right time for me to pull the trigger. It was great to hear it. And then on the flip side, I've had three clients in the last probably 60 days who have likely spent less than 1% of their time. And they hired an investment bank that has a track record of closing deals you know, based Uh on some awards they've been given. But when you talk to the people in the industry, they seem to say, Well, they've got such a high volume of potential transactions that, you know, the closed transactions might only represent ten percent. So if you if you look at your batting average it might be terrible. Uh And unfortunately these owners, you know, they they take that cold call, they go to the seminar and there they are at the end of the day signing a listing where they're not quite sure who they're hiring. Yeah. It would be great if we could solve that problem.
2: Yeah, I agree. That's a really tough problem to solve, obviously. But I think that one of the ways to do that is to give entrepreneurs a resource on the internet where they can share information about their experiences with transaction professionals. And the key challenge, obviously, is to design that community and design that resource in a way where the information is reliable and validated and reputable, and it doesn't turn into a, you know a, a sort of a, a community on the internet that's you know sort of a pissing contest for for lack of a better word. And so that's obviously an important challenge, and that's you know part of the reason that we're trying to be really thoughtful about it. Our general approach at Axial is to invite people to link to and provide reference to their successful transactions, because at a minimum, that allows entrepreneurs to pick up the phone and call those CEOs and say, hey, what was your experience working with this professional? What was it like having them run the transaction? But your point around the batting averages is obviously a good one. And I think that You know, I think that one of the questions that we recommend every business owner asks every investment banker who they're interviewing is, you know, can you put me in touch with someone where, you know, you had a less than ideal outcome? I think that that's a really important question to ask because I think there isn't a single investment banker out there who's great and who's amazing at what they do, who hasn't had a deal go sideways for one reason or another. It just doesn't, you know, deals don't close 100% of the time. It's just, it's just the way it is. And sometimes it, it, um you know, it has nothing to do with the investment banker. Sometimes it does have something to do with the investment banker. There's a whole host of factors out there that can contribute to a deal going sideways. And so I think reputable, confident investment banking professionals understand that, they're aware of that, and they don't hide from that. And they're more than willing to make introductions to CEOs who they've worked with, who have, you know, who have had a deal go sideways, and and they had to, to struggle alongside the entrepreneur to make the best of the situation.
1: Well, I've heard that 60% of deals that get an assigned LOI don't close. I know know 62% of statistics are made up on the spot.
2: I think the challenge there is uh, it depends a lot on the market and the type of transaction. For example, when you sign a term sheet in the Silicon Valley venture capital community, when you sign a term sheet and the financial partner reciprocates and you fully execute the term sheet usually in that world, the conversion from a signed term sheet to a funded deal is very, very high. Very, very high. When you move into the private equity community, it tends to be lower because there tends to be a significant amount of due diligence that the private equity firm does after signing the term sheet. So, then it can be and then the sort of percentages can be all over the map when you're working with different kinds of strategic buyers with different kinds of diligence processes so I think that that percentage is a little bit misleading just because I think it varies so much based upon the community of investment professionals that you're working with and the nature of the transaction and and just who's you know who's on the other side of the table I would say that you really want to drive that number as the entrepreneur you want to drive that number way 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 down because you really don't want to be subject to something like that. And so so the key thing there for an entrepreneur is just everything that you can do to cross the T's and dot the I's before you sign an LOI, you, you absolutely must do. For example, if you haven't had your business financials audited and you don't have an audited summary of your financial performance prior to signing a term sheet, you're really, that's an easy win for an entrepreneur. And if you don't have it audited before the LOI, and then an auditor comes in and does the work, and they come up with a different financial uh, analysis of your your business that can really send things sideways. And that's the kind of thing that uh, a good entrepreneur who's advised by a good banker, they're going to try and get those those boxes checked before signing an LOI and, and going into exclusivity.
1: No doubt. What do you think are the biggest challenges that dealmakers have with getting deals done?
2: You know, some of that is obviously cyclical, and I think some of that is just longer-term changes and trends. I think for, for deal professionals, I'd say that, you know, there's a couple of things right now. I think there's a significant amount of competition right now, maybe more than ever, that is a result of the private equity community significantly growing in terms of its size and the number of active participants over the last 10 years. In addition, you've had a very, very low interest rate environment now for many, many years, which creates real a significant amount of appetite from lenders to lend uh, against cash-generating companies. So you have a significant growth in the size of the industry, and that just creates more competition. Then you also have a very liquid debt market, which is able to increasingly lend at, at higher and higher thresholds and for lower and lower prices. And that just all creates both valuation expansion and multiple expansion for entrepreneurs, which is a good thing obviously for entrepreneurs who are selling their company, but makes it difficult for any given private equity firm or corporate buyer to be the the winner. So that's sort of one challenge. I think there's always a challenge in, in the deal business. There's always these sort of peaks and troughs between feast and famine, where all of a sudden you've got two or three or four live deals all at the same time. And you have to figure out which one you really want to pursue and which business owner you really want to work with the most. The deal business is not a business that scales up in a very easy way. You can't do hundreds of financial transactions a year as a small investment banking brokerage or private equity firm. These are really, really time-intensive transactions. And so, there's always this feast and famine where you go way down the line as a banker or as an investment professional trying to get a deal done, spend a tremendous amount of time on it, and then for some reason it falls through. And meanwhile, you're business development pipeline has completely dried up because you've been spending 110% of your time trying to get a deal all the way across the finish line. And sometimes it closes, but sometimes it doesn't close. And So I think another challenge is how do you maintain a more predictable pipeline of deal flow as an investment banking professional or as a private equity or other type of investment professional? Given that you know when these deals go live, they tend to uh, consume a tremendous amount of your time, and really the only way to do that is to have somebody inside your organization whose full-time job is is business development, right, and and maintaining a pipeline regardless of uh, whether or not the rest of the team is focused on live deals or not. I'd say the third thing for at least for The investment banking professional or for private equity firms that are selling their, you know, their portfolio companies. I think it's always very difficult to get the, you know, the ideal set of buyers to the table and get them to the table more or less at the same point in time. There's a lot of buyers out there. There's a lot of private equity buyers, a lot of corporate buyers, a lot of international buyers. There's a lot of family offices entering the market and. Figuring out as an investment banking professional how how do I get these different parties to the table? How do I get them to the table more or less at the right time and in the right time frame and timeline is hard. It's a lot of work. You got to have a lot of relationships and you got to be able to orchestrate a reasonably well coordinated process in a finite period of time. And the more fragmented the market of buyers gets, the more complicated it is to sort of you know bring all the right people to the table. So could, you know those are the three things that we see a lot of our customers talking to us about is, is those challenges, and it's a big part of sort of how we think about trying to help them.
1: You mentioned how difficult it is to get a deal closed, and most bankers are relying on closed deals to get the vast majority of their income, even though their effort may be spread out across multiple deals, some of which never get to a closing and never of which really remunerate them for their efforts. Do you see compensation yeah. changing over time for, from you know more of an effort-based... Compensation from a success-based compensation, are you seeing any any trends?
2: I am not seeing any trends that are that radical in their nature. I think that it's a really complicated compensation model to perfect. On the one hand, you obviously don't want a tremendous as the owner of a business, you obviously don't want an investment banking professional whose interests are not aligned with yours, but it's a lot easier said than done to really create perfect alignment there. On the one hand, you want to make sure that you compensate them sufficiently on a retainer basis so that they know that you're serious and so that you get their attention, but you don't want to provide them so much economics in a retainer format that they're not as acutely incentivized to sell the business as you are as the owner of the business to exit the business on the other hand you know as the owner you want to be thoughtful about the incentives that an investment banker has to sell your business to anybody versus selling it to the right person because it doesn't matter if the investment banker helps you sell the business for 10 million bucks or 20 million bucks and they it doesn't 20 million dollars from one buyer is you know provided all the terms are the same, is the same as another. But that's not necessarily the way an entrepreneur thinks about it. An entrepreneur thinks about the company and the brand and the team and the employees and the culture. And even if everything else is the same, the earnouts are the same and the purchase price is the same and the escrow is the same and all the things are identical, selling it to one buyer versus selling it to another buyer, it, it matters for an entrepreneur. And it doesn't necessarily matter from an economic perspective for uh, an investment banker. So that's a really tough part of the whole sort of ecosystem Economic system for investment bankers and, and business owners is getting that compensation aligned, you know, in a way that's that's ideal. And I don't see business owners ever being comfortable with all of the economics going into effort-based, nor do I see them being comfortable purely on a success-only basis. So I think the least imperfect system is the one that tends to be most used, which is a portion of the economics are retainer-based to demonstrate that you're serious. And then the lion's share of the economics are associated with getting, uh, getting a transaction over the finish line. I do think, Noah, that if transactions can become easier to do... If the financial information of private companies becomes more standardized, more normalized, easier to understand, if the nature of the transactions and the way that they're structured becomes more repeatable, if company like Axial and other companies that are trying to help solve this problem too make it easier for both entrepreneurs and their advisors to find the ideal capital partners, I do think that you will have higher close rates. And I think that you will have higher certainty of closed transactions. But you really need to get all of those pieces pulled together in order to have the close rates go up. And if the close rates go up, then that really starts to really impact the overall profitability of the industry. And that would be a very good thing. But there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in order to get the private capital markets to that level of efficacy.
1: Hmm. Well, in the time we have left, I'd love it if you could share some of the stories that you're most proud of about what Axial's done for owners and advisors.
2: We've got two that I'll talk about with business owners. business owner down in um, Washington, D.C., runs a defense consulting firm. He's uh, actually a former uh, senior ranking officer from the U.S. Armed Forces and set up his own private uh, defense consulting firm, looking to add on another 20 full-time employees to scale up his defense consulting and defense outsourcing business, but needed to raise some substantial amounts of working capital in order to scale up that way. In order to uh, fulfill some of these government contracts and through Axial and through engaging both an advisor as well as a set of lenders on the platform, he was able to triple his lines of credit, triple the dollar availability of lines of credit to scale his business. That's a nice example of someone using Axial and not selling any of the business, just increasing the debt leverage that the business had available to it. but you know this entrepreneur was able to access that capital without actually selling any equity in his business and just accessing the debt capital markets more effectively. Another entrepreneur on the network is interesting. He's a former investment banker from UBS, the Swiss bank, and he's building out a healthcare information business right now that provides information and informatics and data products to uh, American hospitals. And he raised a uh, an equity round of capital for his business using Axial. And one of the major investors in the uh, financing round ended up being a hospital. And so that hospital ended up being one of his first customers in addition to being an investor. So again, you know, when you make good connections with relevant people in your markets, All kinds of good things can happen from it. Uh, In this case, he not only was able to complete the financing, but he was also able to get a, a very significant pilot customer on board through the network. And then on the advisory side, this one's actually on our website. It's actually completely public. There's a boutique investment bank up in Boston named Progress Partners. Uh, They're an investment advisory services firm. They focus mostly on technology companies. And they joined Axial largely to see if they could build out a better pipeline of customers. And they signed up a technology company in the Boston area that they'd never heard of and signed up a new client within the first uh, 12 months of becoming members. So obviously, a very happy customer there. They signed up the customer and went on to uh, lead the deal for uh, selling that business. So we're working both with you know the advisor in, in certain cases as well as in other cases working directly with the business owners.
1: Terrific. Well, uh, anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before we end today's podcast?
2: I think you know the most important concept in my mind is this notion of entrepreneurs really understanding that the ten percent rule is a really good rule of thumb. You should be spending 10% of your time as an entrepreneur developing relationships with investment banking professionals and potential sources of funding for your business. Because by the time you need the capital or by the time you need those relationships, it's already too late. And so if you aren't developing those with some sort of recurring predictability year in and year out, you're just putting yourself at a disadvantage when you want to do something important with your business. You know, that's the most important, concept that I just really want to hammer into the entrepreneurial community because I think it really will serve all of the world's entrepreneurs really, really well. And then if anybody wants to get in touch with me, I'm obviously a very visible online presence on LinkedIn and other uh, channels, and my, my email address is peter at axial.net. That's A-X-I-A-L.net. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, I'd be delighted to, to hear from them.
0: Great.
1: Well, Peter Lehrman, the founder, CEO of Axial, appreciate having you on the show.
0: Noah, thanks so much for having me.
1: And for all listeners, thanks for joining us and hope to have you with us on a future podcast. Take
0: care. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, We aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.